The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my professional colleague, Ms. Karen Collins. She is a fellow registered dietitian who is a nutrition advisor to the American Institute for Cancer Research. She is the author of Overview of Public Health Dietary Guidelines for Prevention of Cancer, which was a chapter in Scientific American Nutrition, which is online. She's also written over 2,000 articles for the public. She speaks regularly to a variety of health professional audiences, particularly on cancer prevention and survivorship, heart health, and how those areas intersect. Karen is the author of the blog Smart Bites, that's B-Y-T-E-S. She is a fellow of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. She holds a bachelor's degree in dietetics from Purdue University and a master's degree in nutrition from Cornell. She recently spoke at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual conference in Washington, D.C. Her topic was on reducing cancer risk one meal at a time, updated recommendations, and those will be our topic for today. Welcome, Karen. Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. What a great session you had at the Academy meeting. And I feel like we are always fine-tuning our recommendations. It's what makes nutrition fun. And I thought it might be good for our listeners to go through some of those key areas that have been targeted in the brand new cancer prevention recommendations. Does that sound good to you? Sure. Yeah, there's so much misinformation and headline hype on this that can get a little overwhelming when people just go from one headline to the next. It's still important to put it in perspective of what the overall research shows. I couldn't agree more. And I think that consistently, I think throughout both of our careers, we have been constantly fighting this misinformation or where we see an article that grabs a headline, maybe based on one study without seeing the full body of evidence. And so we're quick to rush to brand new dietary recommendations without really understanding the broader background. So we can do that today with cancer. I think many of us fear cancer, even though heart disease remains our number one killer in our country. But cancer is something that everyone is afraid of. And our dietary recommendations, some of them have stayed the same. But there are a couple of recommendations that I certainly want to focus on, and one of them has to do with alcohol. And in your talk, you spoke about how the Mediterranean diet pattern is certainly superior to the Western dietary pattern, which includes a lot of processed foods. But one thing that goes with the Mediterranean diet, I think, is this health halo with alcohol, and in particular, red wine. Can you talk about the role alcohol plays in cancer risk? Yeah, thank you. Alcohol is very much a concern in terms of cancer risk. Alcohol itself has been identified as a carcinogen, and as it's metabolized, it produces a compound called acetaldehyde, and that is also a human carcinogen. So that's you know one of the primary mechanisms across cancer. In addition to that, what many people don't realize is that alcohol in women increases circulating levels of estrogen 
which of course is a, a risk factor for postmenopausal breast cancer, for other estrogen-sensitive tissues like endometrial cancer. So there's a very good reason to be concerned about alcohol. Mm-hmm. And in your talk, you mentioned something really important, and that is there are so many brand new craft breweries out there. And they're wonderful, you know, gathering places and watering holes for the community. But at the same time, we have to be mindful about how much alcohol we could be consuming, as well as a really great point you mentioned, which was glass size influences how much alcohol we drink. Let's review what is an acceptable serving. I think they're different for men and women. So let's talk about those. Well, the serving is based on an amount of an alcoholic beverage that provides 14 grams of ethanol. That's pure alcohol. So in standard terms, no matter who you are, man or woman, one serving would be 12 ounces of typical normal beer, five ounces of a, of a typical wine, or one, of, one and a half ounces of an 80-proof distilled spirit like vodka or, or whiskey or rum or something like that. Now, the differences between men and women come in that for men, the recommended limit is no more than two drinks a day, whereas for women, it's no more than one drink a day. And it gets more complicated because, as you said, our portion sizes, you know, when I have shown people what five ounces of wine looks like, they look at me blankly like, what? Exactly. Um, you know, we've just become so accustomed to these larger things and 12 ounces of beer, that is a standard size, but there's plenty, especially when you look at some of the breweries and so forth, you know, 12 ounces is the small beer. So you could say I had one beer, but you had 24 ounces. That's, you've already had two. Exactly. Um, and then if it's a more concentrated form, like some of the craft beers or some of the fortified wines or a hundred proof liquor, or all, you know, there's all these complications that the bottom line is just that for many people, they can be drinking more than they realize. And, and exceeding the safety limit. If I remember correctly from your talk, the alcohol, in addition to increasing circulating estrogen levels, it also increased the risk for colorectal cancer. Is that correct? Yes. Colorectal cancer is one of the cancers associated with alcohol. Right. Okay. So in thinking about the Mediterranean diet then, which certainly is a heart healthy as well as obesity prevention and cancer prevention kind of style of eating, we have to put the red wine in perspective in that diet. Oh, right. And interestingly, we have to separate out what is nutritionally important in the Mediterranean diet that's associated with health and what is culturally part of a Mediterranean pattern. And so when they've analyzed some of the studies that sort of saying, okay, so the, the Mediterranean diet is all about a pattern rather than one specific food and certainly not about whether you have oregano or pasta or something like that. Right. Although uh, when they've analyzed what components seem to be important in terms of its association with lower cancer risk or lower heart disease risk, it's actually not the wine. It's actually more likely to be the type of fat, the high abundance of fruits and vegetables. In terms of cardiovascular health, it, it may be the um, greater consumption of fish, they have much more limited amounts of meat. It's, you know, kind of a more plant-focused eating pattern. So it, to say that it's the, the red wine just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. And when they have looked at the types of alcohol that people consume, 
the, the risk in terms of cancer is the same, whether it's beer, whether it's distilled liquor, whether it's white wine, or whether it's red wine. Mm, very interesting. Okay, that is one of 10 tips with regard to the new dietary recommendations to reduce cancer risk. And I'm going to, since we just have a half hour together, I'm going to try to focus on the ones that I think are the most important. And then certainly I want you to also have feedback there. But the other one that I thought was important had to do with getting fiber, adequate fiber, not from supplements, but from food. And you and I agree that food should be our first source of nutrients always. But what was so remarkable to me, Karen, was how many grams of fiber we need to get in our diet, where it needs to come from, and how deficient Americans largely are because of our dependence on so much processed food. So what kind of recommendations would you give the public when it comes to fiber? Well, if people really included whole kinds of plant foods, meaning fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, dried beans and peas and lentils, the target is 30 grams a day of dietary fiber. And right now, the average American gets about 17. Mm -hmm. So that's, that can seem pretty daunting because 13 more grams of dietary fiber would potentially be like six and a half more slices of whole grain bread. So we know that we don't need to just load up on more bread. But the thing is that it's substituting so if you make a, a few substitutions at each meal with taking a, a refined grain and instead making it a whole grain, taking a smaller portion of meat and even if it's not a meatless meal, using beans or uh, lentils or something like that in that soup or that stew or that chili, increasing the portion of vegetables, these kinds of things, just small tweaks like that, you can over the course of a day add up to boosting, to achieving that extra 13 grams of fiber. Exactly. And I love it. Not in one superfood. It's with those small changes throughout the day. Exactly. And I loved the way you said it can seem daunting because your trademark is (laughs) helping people take what seems to be daunting and making it doable. So that's what we're going to do with these recommendations today. And something else that you mentioned during your talk that I thought was so pertinent to what I hear, even from fellow healthcare providers, is people seem to have developed a fear of fruit. It's like, oh my gosh, there's sugar in in fruit. We can't be having more than a serving a day or the fear of even fruit juice. Clearly, we want to eat the whole fruit more so than drinking a lot of juice or even worse, putting juice in a baby bottle. But this fear of fruit seems to be uh, concerning to me because the goal is at least five servings of fruits and vegetables per day. And I don't know, do you think people reach their recommended amounts of fruits and vegetables every day? Well, we know that most people do not, and that's very unfortunate. The concern over its sugar content has made people lose sight of the fact that it contains the viscous type of fiber, most of the fruits contain that type of fiber that can help lower blood cholesterol in terms of heart health can provide types of fiber that are prebiotics that can feed a healthy gut microbiome, which is important, we believe. Um, you know, still learning what that means, but how that could support lower cancer risk or heart disease risk, all kinds of things. Numerous vitamins and phytochemicals that seem to be protective against inflammation. So to 
cost all of that is just so unfortunate when there are far more important changes we can make to limit the amount of added sugars. It's added sugars that are the biggest problem, not a fear of every single gram of sugar that would be naturally in fruit. Exactly. And you also mentioned that in addition to fear of fruit, I think for a while there had been a fear of potatoes. And I think about the potatoes that I serve my family, you know, gosh, they come in different colors. There are different nutrients associated with those colors. There's been some research at the Rodale Institute, for example, on purple potatoes and all the great anti-cancer and anti-inflammatory compounds in those. So can we put potatoes in perspective? <laughs> yes. The unfortunate thing is with potatoes, I think it's it's two things. Number one is that potatoes account for almost a third of our vegetable consumption. The problem isn't, you know, that we when we say eat more vegetables, we need to just continue our habits and just eat more of what we're already doing. We do need more variety. And unfortunately, most of the potatoes we're eating are probably not what you're talking about serving your family. About two-thirds of them are served as either French fries or chips or other processed products. Mm-hmm. So as we do that, we're, we're not taking advantage of what they have to offer in terms of vitamin C and potassium and things like that, we're getting the negative side. And our portion sizes, whether it's the baked potato you get when you're out and it's big enough, you know, it would have been the size of what my family ate when I was growing up, or this jumbo french fry order or something, we need to keep them in their portions in perspective on the plate. But if we do all that, then as part of a regular meal, the concern that these are somehow, you know, such a high effect on our blood sugar, the the effect on our blood sugar is based on what else is eaten with that meal. Exactly. So if it's part of a healthy meal that has fiber, that has healthy fats, then that's not just a whole different picture than what, so does the average American need to change their use of potatoes? Yes, they probably do. But that doesn't mean fear of potatoes as a horrible food. It means rethinking their role and how they've been preparing them or eating them. On the subject of potatoes, one of the issues that was brought up during the talk in Washington, D.C. had to do with glycemic load. And I think that's where potatoes kind of raise the red flag among people who are trying to be more food savvy. So glycemic load was listed as a risk area, something that increases the risk in particular of endometrial cancer. And I think when we have looked at just potatoes themselves, we'd say, yes, that has a higher glycemic load than, say, a bowl of beans, for example. But ruling out everything with a high glycemic load without considering that glycemic load is affected by what else we eat with that food is really an important point that you made. Do you want to just explain a little bit about what glycemic load is and how we might reduce it overall in our diet? Sure. So step back one more piece, and that is to the glycemic index. Right. That measures how much blood sugar goes up after, in a couple hours after eating a particular food. And then glycemic load takes that index, because that's all in a uniform amount of food, and says, well, what about per a standard portion? Because obviously the more you eat of something, the higher it's 
amount of, of uh, blood sugar, it's going to be raise amount more. It's going to be raising your blood sugar. And so concern, both in terms of you know the obvious, in terms of someone who has diabetes or prediabetes, but as we've looked at now, the looking at all the different metabolic factors that might affect um, heart disease risk and cancer risk, the effect that this rising blood sugar could have on promoting levels of insulin that could in turn then be harmful is where a lot of this has, has come from. So that all is totally makes sense. And as you pointed out, yes, high glycemic load has been associated with um, increased risk of endometrial cancer. But we know very clearly from very extensive controlled studies in diabetes prevention where they looked carefully at how they could improve people's blood sugar and decrease their insulin resistance. We know that this is not the, the whole answer to the problem. And the effect of any particular food on blood sugar levels will change. For example, some people are afraid of carrots. They think, oh my gosh, that's horrible. They have so much natural sugar. But the uh, amount of blood sugar rising you would get out of, of carrots would be if you ate like a whole pound of carrots. And I don't know of people that I have that problem where I'm telling them, please stop eating so many carrots. Right. So that sort of takes that out. We know that how a food is prepared affects it. So the ripeness of a, of a banana, cooking pasta al dente, the, the not quite so mushy, makes it uh, less of a blood sugar rising effect than if it's, if it's overcooked. Oatmeal, that's instant oatmeal, rise, makes your blood sugar rise more than old-fashioned or, or steel-cut, something like that. But what I think is really important are two things. One is that, as you mentioned, Melinda, the other foods, we don't eat a food by itself most of the time it's, if it's part of a meal. Whatever the glycemic index or glycemic load of a food is, actual effect on our blood sugar will change based on if it's part of a, a meal that has some kind of fat in it. So if there's dressing on a salad, if, it's, if there's stir fry, oil used to stir fry the vegetables, if there's avocado in something, all of that, that fat slows down the blood sugar rise. If there's protein in the meal, which there should be, it should be a balanced meal. It doesn't have to be meat, but if there's protein from beans or any source, that will slow it down. If there's acid from vinegar or lemon juice in a, in a dressing salad or sprinkled on some vegetables, that'll affect the glycemic effect of the potatoes that you have with it. Oh, wow. And the fiber. So if you have beans or lentils, that slows it down. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. Our guest is Ms. Karen Collins. She is a fellow registered dietitian, and she is an advisor to the American Institute for Cancer Research. We are talking about the brand new dietary guidelines to reduce cancer risk. They also, by the way, help reduce risk for cardiovascular disease and obesity and diabetes. And we are talking about the individual recommendations on how they apply to our diet. Well, we have to talk about meat because that is something that continues to raise a red flag for us. And it's really hard in our society where we have such a meat-centric culture. You made a really good point in your talk in Washington, D.C. about how changing our language about having a plant-focused diet rather than a plant, say, dominant diet that might scare people away. But the whole idea of red meat in particular is carcinogenic, and we can talk about why that is, but we can still have some meat 
the issue is making sure that we're filling our plate with mostly more fruits and vegetables, more whole grains, more beans and legumes. So tell me why is red meat in particular carcinogenic? Well, red meat, now when we say red meat, we mean beef, lamb, pork is is most of it for the typical American. And there's multiple mechanisms that may be involved. Often people think it's the fat, but that's not true. The, The fatty meats would be associated with heart disease risk, but it's, there's mechanisms that have been identified even for lean red meat because it seems to be the, the concern is the higher, it's called heme iron, the form of iron that's in red meat, which can be converted to compounds that pose risk, that produce free radicals, that lead to this oxidative stress that can damage cells and lead to cancer formation. So it, it's not just the fat in the meat. But then on top of that, if I can just clarify, yeah. processed meats would be meats that are like hot dogs or sausage or many of our, our lunch meats, pepperoni, things like that. This is a meat that is addition, poses even much greater risk because of compounds formed when it's smoked or salted or cured or has certain preservatives added. Mm-hmm. Another question that comes up, talking about meat and what we might eat in place of it, it has to do with soy. So a lot of people might turn their nose up when it comes to, say, tofu, because again, it's not part of mainstream Western culture. I really like soy. I like edamame, for example, just some steamed soybeans within their pods. They're really tasty. I've had tofu prepared in ways that is simply delicious with a stir fry with lots of vegetables. But a lot of women are concerned about soy when it comes to breast cancer risk. Soy contains beneficial compounds called isoflavones. Tell me what the updates are on soy. Soy is a green light in terms of cancer risk. We don't know that it will necessarily lower cancer risk, other than if by eating soy that means you're eating less red meat, then you know it's giving you an alternative. But the old was based on laboratory studies in cells or in animals where there was concern that these isoflavone compounds, which were initially pegged phytoestrogens, which is what scared everybody, mm-hmm. but their chemical structure is like estrogen. And so there was concern that they might increase risk of cancers like breast cancer. Now that we have more human data, we see that that is not true and that in Asian cultures, where soy foods have been a standard part of the diet for generations, higher soy consumption is not associated with risk. And we have limited data showing in breast cancer survivors that soy may, in fact, decrease all-cause mortality, not decreasing necessarily cancer recurrence, but decreasing overall deaths. Hmm. One of the things that I really love about the American Institute of Cancer Research is it does take daunting research and it does make it doable. So there are certainly recipes on that website. And I just want to give our listeners a couple of sites. It's www.aicr.org, where you can get all of the new guidelines, as well as more on the specifics that Karen and I are talking about. The other website, Karen, which you mentioned before we went on air, has to do with just a personal checklist, which is www.cancerhealthcheck.org, where people can go and 
look at their individual risks to see what they can do with regard to diet or exercise to reduce overall risk. What would you like to add to our conversation? I think the important thing is for people to realize that it can get scary, frankly, with the amount of headlines suggesting this causes cancer or setting some image that you have to just eat perfectly to make a difference to lower your risk and affirm for people that when we put all of the today's best evidence in perspective, that is not what's shown. We see that the closer you come to these uh, recommendations, the lower your cancer risk. Work on them all. Do as, as best you can. But any step toward them is enough that will start changing cancer risk. And the important thing is that it's a long term. So the more challenging the diet is not necessarily the better because it needs to be something you can stick with long term. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think that you and I both have been in this profession for decades. And we get so many questions from consumers who want to know, well, what about this next latest, greatest diet approach? One of the recent blog posts that you wrote had to do with the keto diet and the enthusiasm around that. And you mentioned carbohydrate restriction in your talk in Washington, D.C., in which you spoke about, we have to consider what kinds of foods we're not including and the benefits that we lose with those foods. So lots of carbohydrate-rich foods like beans, for example, and some of the vegetables that we would recommend might not be included in a ketogenic diet, but we would be losing the benefits of cancer and heart disease risk prevention. So tell me how you, if somebody came up to you and said, gosh, Karen, what is the best diet? I hear about the ketogenic diet. What are your thoughts? Well, I think, number one, a lot of the concern has been misinterpretation from headlines. You can take basically any kind of diet, and if you compare it to what the average American diet is like right now, of course it will be better. Yeah. But when you take reducing saturated fat, for example, it depends what you eat instead. If you're eating fat-free cookies, no, it's not going to be any better. It's going to be worse. But if you replace that unhealthy fat with whole grains and vegetables and and healthy forms of fat, it will be better. If you take a plant-based diet, which focuses on plant foods, if you're just eating refined grains and sweets all day, those are plant foods, but that's going to be worse. It's not going to be better. So it's really looking at the quality of the foods we eat. And likewise, if you cut carbohydrates, you can make a tremendous difference. Cut the carbohydrates that are not helping your health. Cut out sugar-sweetened drinks. Cut back and make the amount of like sweet treats truly a, an occasional treat, not a daily meal. And look at how often you're having refined grains. Make those switches, and you can do a tremendous amount for your diet by swapping those foods for more healthful choices. And I think for most people, that becomes something that can be doable in the long term. Absolutely. And just for our listeners, if you want to read any of Karen's wonderful blog posts and assessment of some of these different diets and how we can apply them or not to our daily lives, her website is KarenCollinsNutrition.com. Well, Karen, I want to thank you so much for joining me today and for presenting such a wonderful talk at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting. We're going to have to wrap up, but in closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, 
Karen Collins, fellow registered dietitian, nutrition advisor to the American Institute for Cancer Research, and she is the author of over 2,000 articles about the kinds of things we've been discussing today. Karen, thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for the chance to talk with you.